Father, we desperately need you, but we don't know that well enough. Please give us the brokenness that we need and the lowliness that we need to look up and see you as you are and to worship you as you deserve. Please pour out your spirit on, this con on these congregations that we might know the grace of God and that we might receive the love and the grace and strengthening and help of God through the church, through the scriptures, and through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, who made the church and who is building it. Amen. Amen. So our sermon title today is Brokenness. Solomon receives the anointing and then loses it all. We're going to begin with a couple of introductory scriptures. Um, first, thank you so much, Deanna. Um, Exodus chapter 20, the first several verses. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So those are the first couple of the Ten Commandments. There were many other laws given uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Um, God says through Mo God gives through Moses some rules for the king. Well, there is no king. They're, they've just come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They haven't even gotten to the period of the judges yet, nor have they gotten to King Saul, the first king, that the people were going to ask for, kind of rejecting God as king, nor have they gotten to David, who we'll touch on briefly today, nor have they gotten to Solomon, our main focus. But God knows what's going to happen, so he gives some rules for the people in advance. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. 
And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, like Nebuchadnezzar, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now let's look at one more law in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 11. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Remember, what do we know about these guys? For hundreds of years, for like more than four centuries, well, for many centuries from the time of uh, God leading Abraham through the land to kind of tour it and show him what he's going to give them, he says, the cup of their sin isn't full yet. It had to fill up. They had to sin for many more centuries until God said, until God's mercy and patience ran out. And he said, They're so bad, now I'm going to make them drink the cup. They'll drink the cup of my wrath. And my wrath will be poured out like a bowl of scalding something on them, and they will be destroyed, right? So he was about to send Israel in to work destruction for them and to give a better people that land. Not. It was not because Israel was better. Hmm. I'm uh, when the Lord your God bring, brings you into the land to take possession of it and clears away from you, clears away many nations before you, um, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, verse two. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your, so- your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So they aren't better than that principle. If you marry yourself to a people, if you embrace a culture that is idolatrous, that, is, that doesn't worship the Lord Christ, it will turn your heart away from God. You're not going to escape that either. For they would turn your, heart, turn your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But we saw in our study of Daniel, he was still very patient with them, for their hundreds of years of idolatry, several hundred years of it, like the Canaanites. But thus shall you do with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you, this is not just to Israel, but to GCF, 
and all Christians, of course, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Praise the Lord. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people. It was not because of your righteousness. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So what about that has changed for us? Nothing. But without further ado, let's move on to Solomon. So, so before we can talk about Solomon, we have to touch on David. Um, so what do we know about David? David, uh, we did a study on David uh, four or six months ago. He, his life was basically suffering, 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 and then it got better, and then suffering, and then it got better. Um, he lived, uh, he was kind of rejected by, his, he was sort of ostracized, not considered as much a part of the family. Um, his father certainly didn't think anything great would come for David. So he put him out with the animals, and the rest of the children were counted as more family. Well, uh, God sent a priest to anoint David as king. And from then on, the Holy Spirit rushed on him. He was filled with the Spirit of the Lord from the time he was uh, uh, like a teenager as a shepherd. Um, he defeated lions and bears. That's not a happy thing. That's kind of a, that, that would have been awful. That would have been good at the end of the day, but the rest of the day, while you're fighting the bear and while the bear is stealing your sheep, that's, that's actually kind of a miserable time. So that's not like all great. Um, then he, uh, he defeats uh, Goliath at the hand of the, the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord. And so Saul, a really wicked guy, just became king of Israel, just like they deserved. He, he, he was pretty bad and uh, turned away from the Lord at the end of his life. Well, Saul conscripts David into his service. And David soon founds out that Saul is a raving madman, not unlike Nebuchadnezzar. This is kind of a theme for the lives of the people of God who are called to great service and works. Well, things don't get entirely better for David. He spends years and years running for his life. He writes all these psalms, and from a heart full of brokenness and from a bed drenched with tears, he cries out to God things like, Oh God, save me. And then after God establishes in his kingdom, what do his psalms look like then? You know, they normally start and end with praise. 
uh, with few exceptions. Um, but they're usually in the wilderness running from Saul and, uh, and during the Civil War before he was established as king over all of Israel, uh, he was at war and things were generally bad for David. So his psalms are psalms of suffering, brokenness and tears, yet they start and end with praise. So that's in David's heart. And then he's established in the kingdom and after so many years, he, he sleeps with his friend's wife. And, um, and then he sends a message to the commander of the kings of the army who's out there at war while David's back at home in his palace um, and says, get her husband killed. Just put him on the front lines and then withdraw. So for a man who is called by God, a man after my own heart, it seems like it's not even David's righteousness that gets him that title. It's, it's David's yearning and desperation for God. That is faith, simply put. Um, seeing God as he is and seeing himself as he is, seeing ourselves as we really are, it gives us like this falling down on our face in fear of God and, and sense of neediness and brokenness for him. And that's what GCF is losing. So after David's sin, he writes Psalm 51, which is our homework to read that as many times as you uh, can over a long period of time. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. Blot out my transgressions. So these kinds of prayers are in David's heart. And at the end of Psalm 51, he says, basically, and after you forgive me and the rest of the people, then sacrifices will be offered. It's like kind of, then we'll have church again, so to speak. You know, then, then things will be put right. Then you'll get the worship you deserve. But the worship God deserves starts with our being broken and lowly. And when our hearts are lifted up and we, we feel like everything in life is fine and we're good with that, then no matter what we're doing, we're not worshiping him. And some of that has gotten into our hearts here at GCF. So what was in David's heart, Solomon's father? Uh, delighting in the Lord, worshiping and teaching people to worship. And towards the end of his life, he was like consumed with this thought of building a house for the Lord. He's like, I'm living in a palace. The ark of God representing God's presence is in a tent. And he's like, that's a problem. It was very good of him to recognize that. So he pray, So he, he tells uh, uh, God sends a prophet to him, and the prophet says, yeah, okay, go ahead and do all that's in your heart. Build the house. And then the prophet turns right back around at the command of the Lord and tells him, actually, no, you won't be the one to build the house. You are a man of blood. You murdered a man, and you have been involved in many wars. Well, it was the Lord who raised him up to... to put the wicked out of the land day by day. That was in David's heart too, to bring in righteousness. And part of that means putting the wickedness out of your house and out of your household. And we need, we need more of that in our hearts. So God said, no, it's not going to be you who builds the temple. It'll be your son. He will be a man of peace. Or in Hebrew, Solomon. Peace man, man of peace. He will build the house. But since, but moreover, 
I will do this for you. You wanted to build me a house. I'm going to build your household. I'm going to leave you a legacy with a king on the throne of Israel forever. Well, we know from the time of our study in Daniel recently that that didn't happen the way it sounds like God was saying it would happen on the surface. God had an eternal king whose reign he was ushering in, an eternal Christ who is coming, and only he can save us from where we are. So David prepared for the construction of the house of God, the first temple. He saved up billions of dollars worth of gold, silver, timber, stones. He signed people up and assigned them jobs for cutting more stones, for cutting timber, for doing the artwork of the temple, and he had all this ready. And then um, we're going to look at uh, 1 Chronicles 22. Then at the end of his life, he commanded his son Solomon to follow the Lord and to build the house. So will Solomon carry on David's legacy of overwhelmingly following the Lord in faithfulness? And will he build the house? No and yes. And sort of. Second, First Chronicles 22. Um, David had uh, committed a sin. He, uh, we won't go into it in First Chronicles 21. It brings God's judgment and uh, tens of thousands of people in Israel die at the hand of the sword of the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God. And then God tells them, uh, God tells him to build an altar there on, I think it was Mount Moriah um, near Jerusalem on the threshing floor of Aruna. And he does, and he buys the threshing floor. He buys the guy's oxen. He builds an altar. He offers the oxen and he worships. And the Lord is pleased, just like the Lord was pleased by uh, Abraham's uh, attempt to offer his son. uh, And the Lord was pleased and stayed his hand and raised up his son to give him a legacy. So there at the threshing floor, after making the offering, David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God. And here, the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So then it says, uh, we're going to skip a few verses. David commanded to gather together the stone cutters, the wood cutters, and he saved up all this iron, all the, all the bronze, cedar timbers. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. And we said this is to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars of gold and materials. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. 
he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So then David says to his son, Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding, that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous, fear not, do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord, and then he lists the billions and billions of dollars worth of supplies. You have an abundance of workmen. Arise and work, the Lord be with you. And then David commanded the leaders of Israel to help Solomon and his son. And he said, verse 19, Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. When David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son, king over Israel. So now let's look at the rise and the fall of King Solomon. Solomon receives the anointing and then loses it all. Um, we're going to skip a passage. In 1 Kings 3.3, 3, we begin to learn what's in Solomon's heart. It seems to be the same as what's in David's heart. In 1 Kings uh, 3, 3, it says Solomon loved the Lord like his father David. Praise the Lord for beginning to fulfill his promise and setting a righteous king on the throne of Israel. In, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, we see something else of what's in Solomon's heart. He basically tells the Lord, I'm like a child. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to lead this great people. You're a great people that you've made. And so he prays. Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7. In that night, God appeared to Solomon. That's normally a sign that God loves him, like God loved Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar had these several encounters with God. Well, here's Solomon's first encounter with God. And said to him, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, 
but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. Think about that. That's like, that's been echoing through history all these years. There have been some very great emperors. None was like King Solomon. There have been some people with really high IQs. There have been some people who were known abroad for their wisdom, their discretion, their skill in teaching, their, their Bible teaching ability. None has been like King Solomon, and none will ever be. Well, then there was John the Baptist, who was like this essentially humble guy with rough edges, and Jesus said of him, you know, there's no one greater in the kingdom than him. But in terms of wisdom, in terms of greatness as a king, nobody will ever be as great as King Solomon. The anointing of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord on this man to, to act as a wise king, he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is largely attributed to one person, King Solomon. The blessing and the anointing of the Lord on Solomon was one of the greatest we've ever seen. That, just think about that. And he rose to greatness, an extraordinary greatness, um, to save time, we're not going to go through uh, all the passages in uh, uh, Kings and Chronicles, but if you go home and just Google Solomon, you'll find the passages in Kings and the passages in Chronicles that talk about him. We're going to summarize them, and then we're going to read the last chapter in Solomon's life. So King Solomon quickly set out to build the house of the Lord. It was immediately clear that he had extraordinary wisdom and that his wisdom was from God. So we need that, but we need a lot more than that. We need brokenness to have the heart of King David and to, be, and to not make the mistakes that Solomon made. So for multiple chapters in Chronicles, um, the author details all the greatness and all the riches of Solomon. It says that, uh, that he made uh, gold like multiply in Jerusalem and silver was as common in the capital city of Israel as rocks. Like such that silver wasn't even considered valuable in his days. So this is like way beyond the riches of the United States, etc. Like his wisdom, his skill, the riches and possessions God gave him brought this, this transformation in society in a few years probably that where, where the wealth, where the nation was filled with wealth, the blessing of God, like if you, if you want the health and wealth gospel, you need to go back in time. Like this is the, the blessing of God filled the land and God was downloading his heart and his own wisdom into this guy's mind, and he was teaching the people and judging them in discretion and righteousness and even holiness. Well, the people were being sanctified. 
So that's something about the culture and about the head of their culture under God. Well, then Solomon builds the house. He spends seven years building the house of God. No matter that he spent, I think, 14 years building his own house, but that's probably not necessarily sin. Um, might show a little of what was in his heart. Um, but he spends the better part of a decade building the house of God. And if you think about the money he had to leverage and the, the employees, the servants that he had already set up before he even became king, and he added to that, oh, he added to that. He taxed the people heavily. His thumb was, was, was heavy. And uh, the taxes, the revenue flowed into the palace. Um, and much of it went into building this magnificent house of God that became truly the house of houses. And the Lord says through the prophet, I believe Isaiah, you know, I don't, I don't live in houses. Like, heaven is my chair. Heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. Where's the house you'll build for me? You know. Um, but if the Lord deserved any kind of house, it would have looked something like this. And of course, this is the best Solomon could offer. But it was better than anyone before or since had offered in terms of a building. So then he offered, he calls the people together and he builds this kind of podium close to the altar in the temple and that he's offering thousands of sacrifices. So when you offer a sacrifice like a cow, that's kind of like taking a car and donating it, like your family car and saying, okay, I'm giving this to the Lord. That's expensive. So Solomon is offering like tens of thousands of sheep and oxen, and cetera, he's giving a huge quantity of money just for that day's worship service, although it probably lasted many days. And then he stood up and he, called, he prayed to the Lord on this platform in the sight of all Israel that had gathered. And he prays one of the most extraordinary prayers ever prayed. It's wonderful. It's like the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 in some ways. He's calling the people to faithfulness. He's humbling himself before the Lord. He's calling the people to walk in the ways of the Lord. It would really be a good study for us to find that prayer. Unfortunately, I can't uh, remember where I put it in my notes. I have all these passages written down that we're having to skip. Uh, so you'll have to find it yourself. Homework. <laughs> so, um, so God shows up again and fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. Doesn't that just remind you of like the fire from the Lord coming and consuming the sacrifice on Mount Carmel when it's this big showdown between Elijah calling the people to faithfulness and basically the pastors of the land, the, the priests of these sick Canaanite uh, gods and goddesses. Um, and, and then Elijah, of course, has them put out of the land. Well, they're killed that day. And rightly so. They should have, that worship of that idolatry should have been gone out of the land before. So fire falls from heaven, consumes Elijah's sacrifice, which is sopping wet, and licks up all the water in the trench about it, um, and melts the stones. It takes a lot of heat to melt rock. But the glory of the Lord is like a consuming fire. Is a consuming of the fire. So that happens again. Fire from the Lord falls. It's like the pillar of fire that was with the Israelites in the wilderness has come back. It's like the ultra, the super clear visible presence of God. It's like he's come down and not just been in, you know, enshrouded in the mountain in smoke and darkness, kind of like a 
active volcano where you know he's up there and you're terrified to even touch the foot of the mountain. Um, it's like God's here now. God's dwelling among his people. And you can see this pillar of the fire around the presence and the glory of God right there. And the people are all camped about it. You know, that's how they moved through the wilderness all those years. God was there. And Moses taught them, well, now it's like God has come back like fully as much as ever. And now he's got a house and everything's so good in society. And we've got like this man of God in our midst and he is giving us, he's just downloading God's heart and mind and we're starting to get it and we're being sanctified. Things are going so right. Solomon seemed to be this man of peace and righteousness, ushering a new era of everything going right and the country coming to God and remaining faithful to his laws. Like we saw, like the, the people of Israel uh, in the wilderness with Moses had said, all that the Lord has said will do. And, you know, you know, God's like, nice try. You know, I forgive you. <laughs> but ultimately that generation died in the wilderness. And now it seems like they finally get it right. It seems like the people are finally righteous enough for God to dwell in their midst. First Kings, uh, losing my notes here, chapter 22, I think. Chapter 12. One second, please. Uh, First Kings chapter 11. All of that continued for many years. The people probably thought it would last forever. And they probably thought, this is what's in God's heart towards us. Well, there's something about riches and there's something about life going right. And there's something about being human. That those kinds of things tend to turn our heart from the Lord. First Kings chapter 11. Now Solomon loved many foreign women. Does he have a little bit of a, we could call it a little bit like a pornography problem? I think so. Something like that. His first wife was the daughter of Pharaoh. <laughs> you should be like, don't intermarry with Egypt. Like, we're never to go back there. We were supposed to come out under the mighty hand of God and never go back, not even to buy ca their cars, not even to buy their horses. Like, we can't go back to Egypt, a.k.a. I once was lost in sin and the time has sufficed for, for us to walk those ways. Now we must walk as children of light. Now we are light in the Lord. I guess Solomon hadn't read Ephesians. Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into, marry with, in, enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. What are you in love with? Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives 
who were princesses. Oh, do you think he rationalized that? Do you think he said, I've got this brilliant political strategy. I'm probably as smart as maybe a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. He had lots of brilliant political strategies, worked out pretty well for him. Solomon might have been thinking, I know, to secure my reign of peace with these other nations around me that God said I'll have peace with, I'll just go to their kings and I'll say, I'd like to marry your daughter. And because I'm such a great king, they'll say, great, you know, that'll secure our peace with you. You won't blow us up. You won't wipe us out. You know, maybe he was thinking that. Well, so he marries the daughters of all these kings, all these princesses of all the nations around him. There weren't 700 nations around you, Solomon. And 300 concubines. So that's his harem. And his wives turned away his heart. How did that happen? Think about how wise you are and how smart you are. Think about the decisions you've made over the course of your life, some bad, some good, and then do some math and say, all right, your, your wisdom and discernment, your ability to judge between good and evil, it's, you know, give it a number from between one and a hundred or something, or between zero and a hundred if you're like me. <laughs> you got to dig a little. So, and then there's Solomon. It's, he's not a hundred. He's like way past a hundred. He's way wiser. He's a better man. He's better than any man, woman, or child in our midst. He loves the Lord with this wonderful and humble love. And his wives turned away his heart. How come he didn't see that coming? For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. You might not even want to Google that. It's a little disturbing. Let's just say sexual immorality, okay? And after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. I thought David his father had made some big mistakes. This says, wholly follow the Lord as David his father has done, had done. It was not David's righteousness per se that made, that, that equated to him following the Lord. It was more his neediness and his brokenness and his crying out to God to save him that gave him this reputation of being wholly devoted to the Lord. And we need more of that. Our own righteousness is not good enough. Then Solomon built a high place. You know, that's like a hill and then they build something on it and then they go worship there. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, right there on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So here's what Solomon did. You know, David really brought worship of the Lord into Israel and, and brought the, the scriptures to the people and appointed priests and teachers in the towns. And he set up worship leaders 
And it was, it was part of, it became part of the culture of Israel for like everybody to learn the ways of the Lord. And they had an example of a man who wasn't perfect, but who was broken before the Lord. And he had what it took to lead the people, you know, although somebody better was needed to bring about all God had in his heart. And now what does Solomon do? Everything is going really, really well and he's doing well. And then he becomes a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar, the great evangelist for idol worship in the time of uh, the Babylonians who were to come and wipe out most of the rest of Israel after the hundreds of years later from Solomon. Solomon gets it all started. He builds churches, so to speak, for demons and Satan and whatnot, for all these disgusting um, idols. And part of the worship ceremonies for these idols were taking one of your children or one of your babies and burning them. Sounds a lot like the Holocaust, doesn't it? Solomon is bringing in a kind of a Holocaust that is beginning to come. This is, this is a great undoing of what Sol how Solomon started. And then um, their, their worship involved like cutting themselves. I thought cutting yourself was like, like a major um, problem for people who struggle with that. Well, he's like bringing that in as like a form of worship, like cutting yourself. Well, that mean you'll get wounds? As a nurse, I'm thinking like that'll get infected. You're going to die? Yeah. And many of them did. He's bringing in um, worship of these uh, like demon idols, uh, part of which... You know, they, they would have some men and some women and the people going up to worship on their high places would, would go aside to these houses of prostitution and they'd kind of like engage and embrace with uh, in sexual immorality the, these demonic spirits and that was part of their worship ceremonies. Solomon brought this in to the kingdom and his own heart was turned away from the Lord. Things went from seemingly better than they'd ever been, although I would argue things were better under David, to worse than anybody could possibly have imagined, all within his reign. But Solomon was a much better man than us in so many ways. At least he started that way. How will GCF escape the same fate? If that happened to him, why, shouldn't, why should we think that definitely won't happen to us? Are we better than Solomon? No. After Solomon, um, it says the Lord was angry with Solomon um, the, for turning away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. So Solomon said, because this has been your practice, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you, but I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. Wow, that was incredibly merciful. God's compassion, God's mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love is never failing. So after Solomon came, uh, the kingdom was ripped apart. Could we get the slide for um, that one? So... Uh, Solomon had a son who became king, and uh, Rehoboam, and one of Solomon's former employees, Jeroboam, um, uh, became king of the now ripped in half, like the United States in a civil war that never ended, and it never did end for Israel after this, 
the kingdom was broken and, and never came back together again like it was. So if you can see the slide, um, Rehoboam comes to power in Judah and he's like, my pinky finger is bigger than like my father's waist or midsection or that might be a euphemism. Um, he's a creep. Solomon had heavy taxes. Rehoboam is like, my father uh, scourged you with whips, like, you know, the taskmasters making the, his servants, making his employees work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whip you with scorpions. What the heck? Like, what's wrong with this guy? So this is their new king. Um, Jeroboam, one of uh, Solomon's former employees, is like, uh, well, God actually sent a prophet to say, I'm dividing the kingdom. This is, this is my doing, and you're going to get um, the northern part. So the northern part became called Israel, and the southern part came to be called Judah. And for the rest of his, the history of what was one Israel, now you've got Israel and Judah. And uh, things didn't go well in Israel. The, the new king up there, uh, Jeroboam, he's thinking, well, I don't want the country to get back together again. I mean, the temple is still there in Jerusalem. My people are going to go there and worship. I've got to come up with a way to stop it flashback to the people's first sin while God is still giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. What does Aaron do? He gets gold from the people and he makes a golden calf. What? He makes a golden cow? Okay, I'm not worshiping a cow. That's reminiscent of like the depth of depravity and judgment on uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he became kind of like as much cow as man for those seven years of his judgment. So, so the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, makes a big golden calf, and he puts one up in Dan, which is a little tiny circle there at the very top of his country, and one down in Bethel, just across the border from Jerusalem. And he's like, all right, you don't have to worship God anymore. You can worship these. It's really disturbing. This is Solomon's legacy. Um, we're going to try to wrap it up quickly. The people of Israel in the time of Christ knew all this history, and they weren't very proud of it, although they were real proud of Solomon. Maybe that should have been adjusted a little bit in their thinking. Um, maybe their kind of outwardly sanctified culture wasn't all that they thought it was, and maybe that's like something we're beginning to think of at GCF, where we have some pride in our hearts at for what we know and who we are. Too much pride in our hearts for these things. So Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is here in the Gospels. And he's saying, I was the man of peace you needed. I was the righteous son of David you needed. Who recognized it? Not many people at first. Um, in fact, one of the first was a blind guy and he finds out Jesus is walking by with his disciples, and he starts crying out, Have mercy on me, son of David! What he meant was, have mercy on me, one better than Solomon, the one that we have all been waiting for, the Christ, the Messiah, our only hope at this point. And that's what we need in our hearts. We have fear of man, and a lot of it. We all do. It's part of our culture at GCF. We have to fast and pray that God delivers us from our spiritual complacency, whereby we say, things are going pretty well. I like this church. I'm comfortable here. I've grown so much. Praise the Lord. 
We have so far to go, much to repent of, and the judgment of God is never too far from his people who are turning astray, becoming complacent, and becoming complacent and beginning to be happy with your life now is like idolatry. It's called double-mindedness. It's saying, I can have God and I can do me. It's saying, I can worship God and my idols. I can have God and my sin. The Lord has been showing us some things about the sin in our lives. And now is the day of salvation. And now is the time to repent. We're comfortable with our level of Christianity. Is that not true of you? Part of the double-mindedness is that we're simultaneously proud of our Christianity and proud of what we know and proud that GCF is something special, yet we don't live it or sense the glory of God, the weight of his holiness. We have little fear of God. We should have more. We don't live accordingly. If we believe what we say we believe, We'd be brokenhearted and needy all the time. We'd be regularly fasting and pr fasting from food, like you stop eating for a day or longer. We'd be regularly fasting and praying for God to have mercy on us and not let us fall and to use us in whatever way he would please, glorious or inglorious. Like Daniel, Use all the bad circumstances in our lives to bring about something good. Use evil things and take out of the, out of the runes, take, take them and out of the runes, bring about things and people that are pleasing to you. We're asking God to, we're fasting as a congregation and asking God to help us and to use us to cleanse and sanctify us from these unholy attitudes about him that reflect a belief in a God who is a little bit bigger than a regular man, or maybe probably not even great as Solomon. We need help getting out from that kind of Christianity, and we're in it now. If even one-tenth of what the Bible says about how good and powerful and caring God is, is true, then our love for one another, our being quick to forgive, our returning good for evil and not returning insult for insult, our desire to read the scriptures, our hunger and thirst for righteousness, and how broken and needy for God we would be, would be much more than it is now. If you don't feel broken, pray for brokenness. God will take you there. That's his mercy. If you are broken over your sin, your spiritual dryness, and need for God, then fast and pray with me that God forgives us, counts not this sin against us, and pours out his spirit on us to take us much farther, much further into the things of God. Pray with me that God builds us up so that we can love him and love one another with something of the love with which he has first loved us. Our problems are chiefly threefold.
that we don't know the grace, the love, and the work of God in our lives through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, and through our family, our brothers and sisters in the church. We're, we're, we're lacking on grace, both in receiving it and living it out. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. What kind of people then ought we to be in light of all of this? This is Jesus' big first teaching, giving his new disciples um, a taste of what God would have for us. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's like blessed are the sad. Blessed are the, the people who feel like wimps and losers. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need something better than a, than a church where everything is gilded and a culture where everything looks pretty good for a while. We need the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who cry, for they shall be comforted. Cry over our sin and complacency. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is here, and it's coming, and it's in our midst, and the glory of the Lord is going to fill the whole earth. But where will we be when this happens? And what people will God raise up to bring in these things? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But what about those who are good, Will they be satisfied? Will they have righteousness? I tell you, they will not. They will be laid aside, and they will miss the call of God on their lives. Oh God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Blot out our transgressions, not because we deserve it or we're real great and righteous, but because of your faithfulness, because we know who you are. We've seen you. We've seen your face, and we've seen you blot out our transgressions, and we've seen you be faithful to a thousand generations. Praise you. Bless you, Lord. You are good, and your mercy endures forever. And that's all we're counting on. It's only your faithfulness that can keep us in you, cleanse us, and take us further. Father, we need you to pour out your Holy Spirit on Grace Christian Fellowship, we need the next outpouring of your spirit and move of God in our midst. And we understand that it starts with us lowering ourselves. We ask for grace, both to we who are broken and lowly and to we who are not. Please pour out your spirit on us. Only you can save us and cause us to see you and see ourselves rightly, that we may fall down in the fear of God and that we may rise up in worship and delight in you like your servant David.